Chapter Twenty Eight of the Talisman. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lizzie Driver. The Talisman by Sir Walter Scott. Chapter Twenty Eight. Heard ye the din of battle bray, lance to lance and horse to horse. Gray. It had been agreed on account of the heat of the climate, that the judicial combat, which was the cause of the present assemblage of various nations at the diamond of the desert, should take place at one hour after sunrise. The wide lists, which had been constructed under the inspection of the Knight of the Leopard, enclosed a space of hard sand, which was one hundred and twenty yards long by forty in width. They extended in length from north to south, so as to give both parties the equal advantage of the rising sun. Saladin's royal seat was erected on the western side of the enclosure, just in the centre, where the combatants were expected to meet in mid-encounter. Opposed to this was a galley with closed casements, so contrived that the ladies, for whose accommodation it was erected, might see the fight, without being themselves exposed to view. At either extremity of the lists was a barrier, which could be open or shut at pleasure. Thrones had also been erected, but the Archduke, perceiving that his was lower than King Richard's, refused to occupy it, and Cor de Leon, who would have submitted to much ere any formality should have interfered with the combat, readily agreed that the sponsors, as they were called, should remain on horseback during the fight. At one extremity of the lists were placed the followers of Richard, and opposed to them were those who accompanied the defender Conrad. Around the throne destined for the Soldan were ranged his splendid Georgian guards, and the rest of the enclosure was occupied by Christian and Mohammedan spectators. Long before daybreak, the lists were surrounded by an even larger number of Saracens than Richard had seen on the preceding evening. When the first ray of the sun's glorious orb arose above the desert, the sonorous call, To prayer, to prayer, was poured forth by the Soldan himself, and answered by others, whose rank and zeal entitled them to act as mazines. It was a striking spectacle to see them all sink to earth, for the purpose of repeating their devotions, with their faces turned to Mecca. But when they arose from the ground, the sun's rays, now strengthening fast, seemed to confirm the Lord of Gilsland's conjecture of the night before. They were flashed back from many a spearhead, for the pointless lances of the preceding day were certainly no longer such. De Vaux pointed it out to his master, who answered with impatience that he had perfect confidence in the good faith of the Soldan. But if De Vaux was afraid of his bulky body, he might retire. Soon after this the noise of timbrels was heard, at the sound of which the whole Saracen cavaliers threw themselves from their horses and prostrated themselves, as if for a second morning prayer. This was to give an opportunity to the Queen, with Edith and her attendants, to pass from the pavilion to the gallery intended for them. Fifty guards of Saladin's seriglio escorted them with naked sabres, whose orders were to cut to pieces whomsoever, were he prince or peasant, should venture to gaze on the ladies as they passed, or even presume to raise his head until the cessation of the music should make all men aware that they were lodged in their gallery, not to be gazed on by the curious eye. 
their superstitious observance of oriental reverence to the fair sex called forth from queen berengaria some criticisms very unfavourable to saladin in his country but their den as the royal fair called it being securely closed and guarded by the sable attendants she was under the necessity of contenting herself with seeing and laying aside for the present the still more exquisite pleasure of being seen meantime the sponsors of both champions went as was their duty to see that they were duly armed and prepared for combat the archduke of austria was in no hurry to perform this part of the ceremony having had rather an unusually severe debauch upon wine of shiraz the preceding evening but the grand master of the temple more deeply concerned in the event of the combat was early before the tent of conrad of montserrat to his great surprise the attendants refused him admittance do you not know me ye knaves said the grand master in great anger we do most valiant and reverend answered conrad squire but even you may not at present enter the marquess is about to confess himself confess himself exclaimed the templar in a tone where alarm mingled with surprise and scorn and to whom i pray thee my master bid me be secret said the squire on which the grand master pushed past him and entered the tent almost by force the marquess of montserrat was kneeling at the feet of the hermit of engaddi and in the act of beginning his confession what means this marquess said the grand master up for shame or if you must needs confess am i not here i have confessed to you too often already replied conrad with a pale cheek and a faltering voice for god's sake grand master be gone and let me unfold my conscience to this holy man in what way is he holier than i am said the grand master hermit prophet madman say if thou darest in what thou excellest me bold and bad man replied the hermit know that i am like the lattice window and the divine light passes through to avail others though alas it helpeth not me thou art like the iron stanchions which neither receive light themselves nor communicate it to any one prate not to me but depart from this tent said the grand master the marquess shall not confess this morning unless it be to me for i am part not from his side is this your pleasure said the hermit to conrad for think not i will obey that proud man if you continue to desire my assistance alas said conrad irresolutely what would you have me say farewell for a while we will speak anon oh procrastination exclaimed the hermit thou art a soul murderer unhappy man farewell not for a while but until we shall both meet no matter where and for thee he added turning to the grand master tremble tremble replied the templar contemptuously i cannot if i would the hermit had not his answer having left the tent come to this gear hastily said the grand master since thou wilt needs go through this foolery hark thee i think i know most of thy frailties by heart so we may omit the detail which may be somewhat a large one and begin with the absolution what signifies counting the spots of dirt that we are about to wash from our hands knowing what thou art thyself 
said Conrad. It is blasphemous to speak of pardoning another. That is not according to the canon, Lord Marquess, said the Templar. Thou art more scrupulous than orthodox. The absolution of the wicked priest is as effectual as if he were himself a saint otherwise. God help the poor penitent. What wounded man inquires whether the surgeon that tends his gashes has clean hands or no? Come, shall we to this toy? No, said Conrad. I will rather die unconfessed than mock the sacrament. Come, noble Marquess, said the Templar. Rouse up your courage and speak not thus. In an hour's time thou shalt stand victorious in the lists, or confess thee in thy helmet like a valiant knight. Alas, Grand Master, answered Conrad, augurs ill for this affair, the strange discovery by the instinct of the dog, the revival of this Scottish knight, who comes into the list like a spectre, all betokens evil. Pshaw, said the Templar, I have seen thee bend thy lance boldly against him in sport and with equal chance of success. Think thou art but in a tournament, and who bears him better in the tilt-yard than thou? Come, squires and armourers, your master must be accoutred for the field. The attendants entered accordingly, and began to arm the Marquess. What morning is without? said Conrad. The sun rises dimly, answered a squire. Thou seest, Grand Master, said Conrad, not smiles on us. Thou wilt fight the more coolly, my son, answered the Templar. Thank heaven that hath tempered the son of Palestine to suit thine occasion. Thus jested the Grand Master, but his jests had lost their influence on the harassed mind of the Marquess, and, notwithstanding his attempts to seem gay, his gloom communicated itself to the Templar. This craven, he thought, will lose the day in pure faintness and cowardice of heart, which he calls tender conscience. I, whom visions and augury shake not, who am firm in my purpose as the living rock, I should have fought the combat myself. Would to God the Scot may strike him dead on the spot, it were next best to his winning the victory. But come what will, he must have no other confessor than myself. Our sins are too much in common, and he might confess my share with his own. While these thoughts passed through his mind, he continued to assist the Marquess in arming, but it was in silence. The hour at length arrived, the trumpets sounded, the knights rode into the lists armed at all points, and mounted like men who were to do battle for a kingdom's honour. They wore their visors up, and riding around the lists three times, showed themselves to the spectators. Both were goodly persons, and both had noble countenances but there was an air of manly confidence on the brow of the Scot, a radiancy of hope which amounted even to cheerfulness. While, although pride and effort had recalled much of Conrad's natural courage, there lowered still on his brow a cloud of ominous despondence. Even his steed seemed to tread less lightly and blithely to the trumpet sound than the noble Arab, which was bestrode by Sir Kenneth. And the Spruch Sprecher shook his head while he observed that, while the challenger rode around the lists in the course of the sun, that is, from right to left, the defender made the same circuit widensins, that is, from left to right, which is, in most countries, held ominous. 
A temporary altar was erected just beneath the gallery occupied by the queen, and beside it stood the hermit, in the dress of his order as a Carmelite friar. Other churchmen were also present. To this altar the challenger and defender were successively brought forward, conducted by their respective sponsors. Dismounting before it, each knight avouched the justice of his cause by a solemn oath on the evangelists, and prayed that his success might be according to the truth or falsehood of what he then swore. They also made oath that they came to do battle in knightly guise, and with the usual weapons, disclaiming the use of spells, charms, or magical devices to incline victory to their side. The challenger pronounced his vow with a firm and manly voice, and a bold and cheerful countenance. When the ceremony was finished, the Scottish knight looked at the gallery, and bent his head to the earth, as if in honour of those invisible beauties which were enclosed within. Then, loaded with armour as he was, sprung to the saddle without the use of the stirrup, and made his courser carry him in a succession of carousels to his station at the eastern extremity of the lists. Conrad also presented himself before the altar with boldness enough, but his voice as he took the oath sounded hollow, as if drowned in his helmet. The lips with which he appealed to heaven to adjudge victory to the just quarrel grew white as they uttered the impious mockery, and as he turned to remount his horse, the Grand Master approached him closer, as if to rectify something about the sitting of his gorget, and whispered, Coward and fool, recall thy senses, and do me this battle bravely, else by heaven, shouldst thou escape it, thou escapest not me. The savage tone in which this was whispered perhaps completed the confusion of the Marquis's nerves, for he stumbled as he made to his horse, and though he recovered his feet, sprung to the saddle with his usual agility, and displayed his address in horsemanship as he assumed his position opposite to the challenger's, yet the accident did not escape those who were on watch for omens which might predict the fate of the day. The priests, after a solemn prayer that God would show the rightful quarrel, departed from the lists. The trumpets of the challenger then rung a flourish, and a herald at arms proclaimed at the eastern end of the lists, Here stands a good knight, Sir Kenneth of Scotland, champion for the royal king Richard of England, who accuseth Conrad, Marquess of Montserrat, of foul treason and dishonour done to the said king. When the words Kenneth of Scotland announced the name and character of the champion, hitherto scarce generally known, a loud and cheerful acclaim burst forth from the followers of King Richard, and hardly, notwithstanding repeated commands of silence, suffered the reply of the defendant to be heard. He, of course, avouched his innocence, and offered his body for battle. The esquires of the combatants now approached, and delivered to each his shield and lance, assisting to hang the former around his neck, that his two hands might remain free, one for the management of the bridle, the other to direct the lance. The shield of the Scot displayed his old bearing, the leopard, but with the addition of a collar and broken chain, in allusion to his late captivity. The shield of the Marquess bore, in reference to his title, a serrated and rocky mountain. Each shook his lance aloft, as if to ascertain the weight and toughness of the unwieldy weapon, and then laid it in the rest. 
the sponsors, heralds, and squires now retired to the barriers, and the combatants sat opposite to each other, face to face, with couched lance and closed visor, the human form so completely enclosed that they looked more like statues of molten iron than beings of flesh and blood. The silence of suspense was now general. Men breathed thicker, and their very souls seemed seated in their eyes, while not a sound was to be heard save the snorting and pouring of the good steeds, who, sensible of what was about to happen, were impatient to dash into career. They stood thus for perhaps three minutes, when, at a signal given by the Soldan, a hundred instruments rent the air with their brazen clamours, and each champion striking his horse with the spurs, and slacking the rein, the horses started in full gallop, and the knights met in mid-space with a shock like a thunderbolt. The victory was not in doubt, no, not one moment. Conrad, indeed, showed himself a practised warrior, for he struck his antagonist knightly in the midst of his shield, bearing his lance so straight and true that it shivered into splinters from the steel spearhead up to the very gauntlet. The horse of Sir Kenneth recoiled two or three yards and fell on his haunches, but the rider easily raised him with hand and rein. But for Conrad there was no recovery. Sir Kenneth's lance had pierced through the shield, through a plated corslet of Milan steel, through a secret, or coat of linked mail worn beneath the corslet, had wounded him deep in the bosom, and borne him from his saddle, leaving the truncheon of the lance fixed in his wound. The sponsors, heralds, and Saladin himself descended from his throne, crowded around the wounded man, while Sir Kenneth, who had drawn his sword ere yet he discovered his antagonist was totally helpless, now commanded him to avow his guilt. The helmet was hastily unclosed, and the wounded man, gazing wildly on the skies, replied, "'What would you more? God hath decided justly. I am guilty, but there are worse traitors in the camp than I. In pity to my soul, let me have a confessor.' He revived as he uttered these words. "'The talisman, the powerful remedy, royal brother,' said King Richard to Saladin. "'The traitor,' answered the Soldan, "'is more fit to be dragged from the list to the gallows by the heels "'than to profit by its virtues. "'And some such fate is in his look,' he added, "'after gazing fixedly upon the wounded man. "'For though his wound may be cured, "'yet Azrael's seal is on the wretch's brow.' "'Nevertheless,' said Richard, "'I pray you do for him what you may, "'that he may at least have time for confession.' "'Slay not soul and body. "'To him one half-hour of time may be worth more by ten thousandfold "'than the life of the oldest patriarch.' "'My royal brother's wish shall be obeyed,' said Saladin. "'Slaves, bear this wounded man to our tent.' "'Do not so,' said the Templar, "'who had hitherto stood gloomily looking on in silence. "'The royal Duke of Austria and myself will not permit this unhappy Christian prince.' to be delivered over to the Saracens, that they may try their spells upon him. We are his sponsors, and demand that he be assigned to our care. That is, you refuse the certain means offered to recover him? said Richard. Not so, said the Grand Master, recollecting himself. 
If the Soldan useth lawful medicines, he may attend the patient in my tent. Do so, I pray thee, good brother, said Richard to Saladin, though the permission be ungraciously yielded. But now to a more glorious work. Sound trumpets, shout England, in honour of England's champion. Drum, clarion, trumpet, and cymbal rung forth at once, and the deep and regular shout, which for ages has been the English acclamation, sounded amidst the shrill and irregular yells of the Arabs, like the depression of the organ amid the howling of a storm. There was silence at length. Brave knight of the leopard, resumed Coeur de Leon, thou hast shown that the Ethiopian may change his skin, and the leopard his spots, though clerks quote scripture for the impossibility. Yet I have more to say to you when I have conducted you to the presence of the ladies, the best judges and best rewarders of the deeds of chivalry. The knight of the leopard bowed assent. And thou, princely Saladin, wilt also attend them. I promise thee our queen will not think herself welcome if she lacks the opportunity to thank her royal host for her most princely reception. Saladin bent his head gracefully, but declined the invitation. I must attend the wounded man he said. The leech leaves not his patient more than the champion the lists, even if he be summoned to the bower like those of paradise. And further, royal Richard, know that the blood of the East flows not so temperately in the presence of beauty as that of your land. What saith the book itself? Hurray is at the edge of the sword of the prophet. Who shall look upon it? He that would not be burnt avoideth to tread on hot embers." Wise men spread not the flax before a flickering touch. He, saith the sage, who hath forfeited a treasure, doth not wisely to turn back his head to gaze at it. Richard, it may be believed, respected the motives of delicacy which flowed from manners so different from his own, and urged his request no further. At noon, said the Soldan as he departed, I trust you will all accept a collation under the black camel-skin tent of a chief of Kurdistan. The same invitation was circulated among the Christians, comprehending all those of sufficient importance, to be admitted to sit at a feast made for princes. Hark! said Richard. The timbrails announce that our queen and her attendants are leaving their gallery. And see the turbans sink on the ground, as if struck down by a destroying angel. All lie prostrate, as if the glance of an Arab's eye could sully the lustre of a lady's cheek. Come, we will, to the pavilion, and lead our conqueror thither in triumph. How I pity that noble Soldan, who knows but of love as it is known to those of inferior nature. Blondel tuned his harp to his boldest measure, to welcome the introduction of the victor into the pavilion of Queen Berengaria. He entered, supported on either side by his sponsors, Richard and Thomas Longsword, and knelt gracefully down before the Queen, though more than half the homage was silently rendered to Edith, who sat on her right hand. "'Unarm him, my mistresses,' said the King, whose delight was in the execution of such chivalrous usages. "'Let beauty on a chivalry. "'And do his spurs, Berengaria, Queen though thou be, thou owest him what marks of favour thou canst give. "'Unlace his helmet, Edith, by this hand thou shalt, wert thou the proudest plantagenet of the line, and he the poorest knight on earth. Both ladies obeyed the royal commands, Berengaria with bustling assiduity, 
as anxious to gratify her husband's humour, and Edith blushing and growing pale alternatively, as slowly and awkwardly she undid, with Longsword's assistance, the fastenings which secured the helmet to the gorget. "'And what expect you from beneath this iron shell?' said Richard, as the removal of the cast gave to view the noble countenance of Sir Kenneth, his face glowing with recent exertion, and not less so with present emotion. "'What think ye of him, gallants and beauties?' said Richard. "'Doth he resemble an Ethiopian slave, or doth he present the face of an obscure and nameless adventurer? No, by my good sword, here terminate his various disguises. He hath knelt down before you unknown, save by his worth. He arises equally distinguished by birth and by fortune. The adventurous knight Kenneth arises David, Earl of Huntingdon, Prince Royal of Scotland.' There was a general exclamation of surprise, and Edith dropped from her hand the helmet which she had just received. "'Yes, my masters,' said the king, "'it is even so. Ye know how Scotland deceived us, when she proposed to send this valiant earl, with a bold company of her best and noblest, to aid our arms in this conquest of Palestine, but failed to comply with her engagements. This noble youth, under whom the Scottish crusaders were to have been arrayed, thought foul scorn that his arms should be withheld from the holy warfare, and joined us at Sicily with a small train of devoted and faithful attendants, which was augmented by many of his countrymen, to whom the rank of their leader was unknown. The confidence of the royal prince had all, save one follower, fallen by death, when his secret, but too well kept, had near occasioned my cutting off, in a Scottish adventurer, one of the noblest hopes of Europe. "'Why did you not mention your rank, noble Huntingdon, "'when engineered by my hasty and passionate sentence? "'Was it that you thought Richard capable of abusing the advantage "'I possessed over the heir of a king whom I have so often found hostile?' "'I did do not that injustice, royal Richard,' answered the Earl of Huntingdon. "'But my pride brooked not that I should avow myself Prince of Scotland "'in order to save my life, endangered for default of loyalty.' and, moreover, I had made my vow to preserve my rank unknown till the crusade should be accomplished. Nor did I mention it save, in articulo moritas, and under the seal of confession, to yonder reverend hermit. It was the knowledge of that secret, then, which made the good man so urgent with me to recall my severe sentence, said Richard. Well, he did say that, had this good knight fallen by my mandate, I should have wished the deed undone, though it had cost me a limb. A limb, I should have wished it undone had it cost me my life, since the world would have said that Richard had abused the condition in which the heir of Scotland had placed himself by his confidence in his generosity. Yet may we know of your grace by what strange and happy chance this riddle was at length read, said Queen Berengaria. Let us report to us from England, said the king, in which we learned, among other unpleasant news, that the King of Scotland had seized upon three of our nobles, when on a pilgrimage to St. Ninan, and alleged, as a cause, that his heir, being supposed to be fighting in the ranks of the Teutonic knights against the heathen of Borussia, was in fact in our camp and in our power, and therefore William proposed to hold these nobles as hostages for his safety. This gave me the first light on the real rank of the Knight of the Leopard, and my suspicions were confirmed by de Vaux who, on his return from Ascalon, brought back with him the Earl of Huntington's sole attendant, a thick-skulled slave, 
who had gone thirty miles to unfold to Dvorks a secret he should have told to me. "'Old Strachan must be excused,' said the Lord of Gilsland. "'He knew from experience that my heart is somewhat softer than if I wrote myself Plantagenet.' "'Thy heart soft? Thou commodity of an old iron and Cumberland flint that thou art!' exclaimed the king. "'It is we Plantagenets who boast soft and feeling hearts. Edith!' turning to his cousin with an expression which called the blood into her cheek. "'Give me thy hand, my fair cousin, and, Prince of Scotland, thine.' "'Forbear, my lord,' said Edith, hanging back and endeavouring to hide her confusion, under an attempt to rally her royal kinsman's credulity. "'I remember you not that my hand was to be the signal of converting to the Christian faith the Saracen and Arab, Saladin and all his turbaned host?' "'Aye,' "'But the wind of prophecy is chopped about, and sits now in another corner,' replied Richard. "'Mock not, lest your bonds be made strong,' said the hermit, stepping forward. "'The heavenly host writes nothing but in truth their brilliant records. "'It is man's eyes which are too weak to read their characters right. "'Know that when Saladin and Kenneth of Scotland slept in my grotto, "'I read in the stars that there rested under my roof a prince, the natural foe of Richard.' with whom the fate of Edith Pentagen was to be united. Could I doubt that this must be the Soldan, whose rank was well known to me, as he often visited my cell to converse on the revolutions of those heavenly bodies? Again the lights of the firmament proclaimed that this prince, the husband of Edith Pentagen, should be a Christian. And I, weak and wild interpreter, argued thence the conversion of the noble Saladin, whose good qualities seemed often to incline him towards the better faith. The sense of my weakness hath humbled me to the dust, but in the dust I have found comfort. I have not read aright the fate of others. Who can assure me but that I may have miscalculated mine own? God will not have us break his council-house, or spy out his hidden mysteries. We must wait his time with watching and prayer, with fear and hope. I came hither the stern seer, the proud prophet, skilled, as I thought, to instruct princes, and gifted even with supernatural powers but burdened with a weight which I deemed no soldiers but mine could have borne. But my bands have been broken. I go hence humble in mine ignorance, penitent and not hopeless. With these words he withdrew from the assembly, and it is recorded that from that period his frenzy fits seldom occurred, and his penances were of a milder character, and accompanied with better hopes of the future. So much is there of self-opinion, even in insanity, the conviction of his having entertained and expressed an unfounded prediction with so much vehemence seemed to operate like the loss of blood on the human frame, to modify and lower the fever of the brain. It is needless to follow into further particulars the conferences at the royal tent, or to inquire whether David, Earl of Huntingdon, was as mute in the presence of Edith Pentagenet as when he was bound to act under the character of an obscure and nameless adventurer. It may be well believed that he there expressed with suitable earnestness the passion to which he had so often before found it difficult to give words. The hour of noon now approached, and Saladin waited to receive the princes of Christendom, in a tent which, but for its large size, differed little from that of the ordinary shelter of the common Kurdman or Arab. Yet beneath its ample and sable covering was prepared a banquet after the most gorgeous fashion of the East, 
extended upon carpets of the richest stuffs, with cushions laid for the guests. But we cannot stop to describe the cloth of gold and silver, the superb embroidery in Abiesk, the shawls of Kashmir, and the muslins of India, which were here unfolded in all their splendour. Far less to tell the different sweetmeats, ragouts edged with rice coloured in various manners, with all the other niceties of Eastern cooking. Lambs roasted whole, and game and poultry dressed in pileus, were pearled in vessels of gold and silver and porcelain, and intermixed with large mazes of sherbet, called in snow and ice from the caverns of Mount Lebanon. A magnificent pile of cushions at the head of the banquet seemed prepared for the master of the feast, and such dignitaries as he might call to share that place of distinction, while from the roof of the tent in all quarters, but over this seat of eminence in particular, with many a banner and pennon, the trophies of battles won and kingdoms overthrown. But amongst and above them all, a long lance displayed, a shroud, the banner of death, with the impressive inscription, Saladin, King of Kings, Saladin, Victor of Victors, Saladin must die. Amid these preparations, the slaves who had arranged the refreshments stood with drooped heads and folded arms, mute and motionless as monumental statutory, or as automata, which waited the touch of the artist to put them in motion. Expecting the approach of his princely guests, the Soldan, imbued as most were with the superstitions of his time, paused over a horoscope and corresponding scroll, which had been sent to him by the hermit of Angadi when he departed from the camp. Strange and mysterious science, he muttered to himself, which, pretended to draw the curtain of futurity, misleads those whom it seems to guide, and darkens the scene which it pretends to illuminate. Who would not have said that I was the enemy most dangerous to Richard, whose enmity was to be ended by marriage with his kinswoman? Yet it now appears that a union betwixt this gallant earl and the lady will bring about friendship betwixt Richard and Scotland, an enemy more dangerous than I, as a wildcat in a chamber is more to be dreaded than a lion in a distant desert. But then, he continued to mutter to himself, the combination intimates that this husband was to be Christian. Christian, he repeated after a pause. That gave the insane fanatical stargazer hopes that I might renounce my faith. But me, the faithful follower of our prophet, me, it should have been undeceived. Lie there, mysterious scroll, he added, thrusting it under the pile of cushions. Strange are thy bodements and fatal, since, even when true in themselves, they work upon those whom attempt to decipher their meaning and all the effects of falsehood. Here now, what means this intrusion? He spoke to the dwarf Nectabanus, who rushed into the tent faithfully agitated, with each strange and disproportionate feature wrenched by holler into still more extravagant ugliness his mouth open, his eyes staring, his hands, with their shriveled and deformed fingers, wildly expanded. "'What now?' said the Soldan sternly. "'Akibi Hock!' groaned out the dwarf. "'Huh, sayest thou?' answered Saladin. "'Akibi Hock!' replied the pain-struck creature, unconscious, perhaps, that he repeated the same words as before. Hence I am in no vein for foolery, said the emperor. 
"'Nor am I a further fool,' said the dwarf, "'than to make my folly help out my wits to earn my bread, "'poor helpless wretch. "'Hear me, hear me, great Soldan.' "'Nay, if thou hast actual wrong to complain of,' said Saladin, "'fool or wise, thou art entitled to the ear of a king. "'Retire hither with me.' "'And he led him into the inner tent.' Whatever their conference related to, it was soon broken off by the fanfare of the trumpets announcing the arrival of the various Christian princes, whom Saladin welcomed to his tent with a royal courtesy, well becoming their rank and his own. But chiefly he saluted the young Earl of Huntingdon, and generously congratulated him upon prospects which seemed to have interfered with and overclouded those which he himself had entertained. "'But think not,' said the soldan, "'thou noble youth, that the prince of Scotland is more welcome to Saladin "'than was Kenneth to the solitary Ilderim, when they met in the desert, "'all the distressed Ethiop to the Hakim Adonbeck. "'A brave and generous disposition like therein hath a value independent of condition and birth, "'as the cool draught, which I hear proffer thee, "'is as delicious from an earthen vessel as from a goblet of gold.' The Earl of Huntingdon made a suitable reply, gratefully acknowledging the various important services he had received from the generous Soldan. But when he had pledged Saladin in the bowl of sherbet which the Soldan had proffered to him, he could not help remarking with a smile, The brave cavalier Ilderim knew not of the formation of ice, but the munificent Soldan cools his sherbet with snow. "'Wouldst thou have an Arab or a Kurdman, as well as a Hakim?' said the Soldan. "'He who does on a disguise must make the sentiments of his heart "'and the learning of his head accord with the dress which he assumes. "'I desire to see how a brave and single-hearted cavalier of Fragenstein "'would conduct himself in debate with such a chief as I then seemed, "'and I question the truth of a well-known fact "'to know by what arguments thou wouldst support thy assertion.' While they were speaking, the Archduke of Austria, who stood a little apart, was struck with the mention of ice sherbet, and took with pleasure and some bluntness the deep goblet, as the Earl of Huntington was about to replace it. "'Most delicious!' he exclaimed, after a deep draught, which the heat of the weather, and the feverishness following the debauch of the preceding day, had rendered doubly acceptable. He sighed as he handed the cup to the Grand Master of the Templars. Saladin made a sign to the dwarf, who advanced and pronounced with a harsh voice the words, Akipi Hok. The Templar started, like a steed who sees a lion under a bush beside the pathway, yet instantly recovered, and to hide, perhaps, his confusion, raised the goblet to his lips. But those lips never touched that goblet's rim. The sabre of Saladin left its sheath as lightning leaves the cloud. It was waved in the air, and the head of the Grand Master rolled to the extremity of the tent, while the trunk remained for a second standing, with the goblet still clenched in its grasp, then fell, the liquor mingling with the blood that sprouted from the veins. There was a general exclamation of treason, and Austria, nearest to whom Saladin stood with the bloody sabre in his hand, started back as if apprehensive that his turn was to come next. Richard and others laid hands on their swords. "'Fear nothing, noble Austria,' said Saladin, as composedly as if nothing had happened. "'Nor you, royal England, 
be wroth at what you have seen, not for his manifold treasons, not for the attempt which, as may be vouched by his own squire, he instigated against King Richard's life. Not that he pursued the Prince of Scotland and myself in the desert, reducing us to save our lives by the speed of our horses. Not that he had stirred up the Maronites to attack us upon this very occasion, had I not brought so unexpectedly so many Arabs as rendered the scheme abortive. Not for any or all of these crimes does he now lie there, although each were deserving such a doom. But because, scarce half an hour ere he polluted our presence, as the simoon empoisons the atmosphere, he poignarded his comrade and accomplice, Conrad of Montserrat, lest he should confess the infamous plots in which they had both been engaged. How, Conrad murdered? And by the Grand Master, his sponsor and most intimate friend? exclaimed Richard. Noble Soldan, I would not doubt thee, yet this must be proved otherwise. There stands the evidence, said Saladin, pointing to the terrified dwarf. Allah, who sends the firefly to illuminate the night season, can discover secret crimes by the most contemptible means. The Soldan proceeded to tell the dwarf's story, which amounted to this. In his foolish curiosity, or, as he partly confessed, with some thoughts of pilfering, Nectabanus strayed into the tent of Conrad, which had been deserted by his attendants, some of whom had left the encampment to carry the news of his defeat to his brother, and others were availing themselves of the means which Saladin had supplied for revelling. The wounded man slept under the influence of Saladin's wonderful talisman, so that the dwarf had opportunity to pry about at pleasure until he was frightened into concealment by the sound of a heavy step. He sulked behind a curtain, yet could see the motions and hear the words of the Grand Master who entered, and carefully secured the covering of the pavilion behind him. His victim started from sleep, and it would appear that he instantly suspected the purpose of his old associate, for it was in a tone of alarm that he demanded wherefore he disturbed him. I come to confess and to absolve thee, answered the Grand Master. Of their further speech the terrified dwarf remembered little, save that Conrad implored the Grand Master not to break a wounded reed, and that the Templar struck him to the heart with a Turkish dagger, with the words, Akupe hoc, words which long afterwards haunted the terrified imagination of the concealed witness. I verified the tale, said Saladin, by causing the body to be examined, and I made this unhappy being, whom Allah hath made discover of the crimes, repeat in your presence the words which the murderer spoke, and you yourself saw the effect which they produced upon his conscience. The Soldan paused, and the King of England broke silence. If this be true, as I doubt not, we have witnessed a great act of justice, though it bore a different aspect. But wherefore in this presence, wherefore with thine own hands? I had designed otherwise, said Saladin, but had I not hastened his doom, it had been altogether averted, since, if I had permitted him to taste of my cup, as he was about to do, how could I, without incurring the brand of inhospitality, have done him to death as he deserved? Had he murdered my father, and afterwards partaken of my food and my bowl, not a hair of his head could have been injured by me. But enough of him. Let his carcass and his memory be removed from amongst us. 
the body was carried away, and the marks of the slaughter obliterated or concealed with such ready dexterity as showed that the case was not altogether so uncommon as to paralyse the assistance and officers of Saladin's household. But the Christian princes felt that the scene which they had beheld weighed heavily on their spirits, and although at the courteous invitation of the Soldan they assumed their seats at the banquet, yet it was with a silence of doubt and amazement. The spirits of Richard alone surmounted all cause for suspicion or embarrassment, yet he too seemed to ruminate on some proposition, as if he were desirous of making it in the most insinuating and acceptable manner which was possible. At length he drank off a large bowl of wine, and, addressing the Soldan, desired to know whether it was not true that he had honoured the Earl of Huntingdon with a personal encounter. Saladin answered with a smile that he had proved his horse and his weapons with the air of Scotland, as cavaliers are wont to do with each other when they meet in the desert, and modestly added that, though the combat was not entirely decisive, he had not on his part much reason to pride himself in the event. The Scot, on the other hand, disclaimed the arbitrated superiority, and wished to assign it to the Soldan. "'Enough of honour thou hast had in the encounter,' said Richard. "'And I envy thee more for that than for the smiles of Edith Plantagenet, though one of them might reward a bloody day's work. But what say you, noble princes? Is it fitting that such a royal ring of chivalry should break up without something being done for future times to speak of? What is the overthrow and death of a traitor to such a fair garland of honour as is here assembled, and which ought not to part without witnessing something more worthy of their regard?' How say you, princely Soldan? What if we two should now, and before this fair company, decide the long-contended question for this land of Palestine, and end at once these tedious wars? Yonder are the lists ready. Nor can Pinyamir ever hope a better champion than thou. I, unless worthier offers, will lay down my gauntlet in behalf of Christendom, and in all love and honour we will do mortal battle for the possession of Jerusalem. There was a deep pause for the Soldan's answer. His cheek and brow coloured highly, and it was the opinion of many present that he hesitated whether he should accept the challenge. At length he said, Fighting for the holy city, against those whom we regard as idolaters and worshippers of stocks and stones and graven images, I might confine that Allah would strengthen my arm, or, if I fell beneath the sword of the Melachrik, I could not pass to paradise by a more glorious death. But Allah has already given Jerusalem to the true believers, and it were attempting the God or the Prophet to peril upon my own personal strength and skill that which I hold securely by the superiority of my forces. If not for Jerusalem, then, said Richard, in the tone of one who would entreat a favour of an intimate friend, yet for the love of honour let us run at least three courses with grinded lances. Even this, said Saladin, half smiling at Cordelian's affectionate earnestness for the combat, even this I may not lawfully do. The master places the shepherd over the flock, not for the shepherd's own sake, but for the sake of the sheep. Had I a son to hold the sceptre when I fell, I might have had the liberty, as I have the will, to braid this bold encounter. But your own scripture saith that when the herdsman is smitten, the sheep are scattered. "'Thou hast had all the fortune,' said Richard, turning to the Earl of Huntingdon with a sigh. 
I would have given the best year in my life for that one half an hour beside the diamond of the desert. The chivalrous exchange of Richard awakened the spirits of the assembly, and when at length they arose to depart, Saladin advanced and took Cordelian by the hand. Noble King of England, he said, we now part, never to meet again. That your league is dissolved, no more to be reunited, and that your noble forces are far too few to enable you to prosecute your enterprise, is as well known to me as to yourself. I may not yield you up that Jerusalem which you so much desire to hold. It is to us, as to you, a holy city. But whatever other terms Richard demands of Saladin shall be as willingly yielded as yonder fountain yields its water. I, and the same should be as frankly afforded by Saladin, if Richard stood in the desert with but two archers in his train. The next day saw Richard's return to his own camp, and in a short space afterwards the young Earl of Huntingdon was espoused by Edith Plantagenet. The Soldan sent, as a nuptial present on this occasion, the celebrated talisman. But though many cures were wrought by means of it in Europe, none equalled in success and celebrity those which the Soldan achieved. It is still in existence, having been bequeathed by the Earl of Huntingdon to a brave knight of Scotland, Sir Simon of the Lee, in whose ancient and highly honoured family it is still preserved. And although charmed stones have been dismissed from the modern pharmacopoeia, its virtues are still applied to for stopping blood, and in cases of canine madness. Our story closes here, as the terms on which Richard relinquished his conquests are to be found in every history of the period. End of chapter 28 End of the Talisman by Sir Walter Scott